This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. Amazon calls employees back to the office at least three days a week. That's a big deal to local businesses. We're going to get into that and other happenings of the week with my panel of journalists, Seattle Times editorial board member and columnist Claudia Rowe. Good to see you here, Claudia. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson on the Spheres Beat. Alex, welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill. Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. Great to see you, Brian. Good to be here, Bill. Thanks. And we are streaming the show so you can see us, too. We're on YouTube and Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. All right, let's begin. Let's talk about uh, Seattle and Amazon just calling its workers back to the office. Alex, you follow this closely, and you were really surprised. You think this is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, third time's the charm, right? They've tried this before, yeah. uh, specifically in 2021, post-vaccine. Everybody was really um, optimistic about getting people back and you know things opening up. And then we had variants and things sort of, the momentum stalled. And Amazon scrapped the plan and said, hey, we'll, we'll visit this later on. Well, now they visited it again, right? Mm. Um, and it comes at a time when you know I'm already reporting on Amazon's giving back space. They're pausing development in Bellevue. So it's a little contradictory there, right? Um, they're downsizing in headcount. But yeah, I guess they're coming back May 1st. Why do you think Amazon's decided to do this now? It's probably a number of different reasons. Uh, maybe it's investor pressure, right? Their past few quarters have not been good. Um, so it's probably hard to sell investors on, hey, things are going just fine working remotely when things aren't going just fine. I'm not saying it's because employees are working remotely, but mm. I'm sure some people aren't happy with that. Um, Jassy said it's about building culture, right? All those corporate things, um, specifically for new hires, development, <coughs> Um, especially as Amazon wants to bring on more younger people. They want to develop them in person. Hmm. Any other questions or reactions? I, I was just going to ask, Alex, how you think this is going to impact other businesses in the area, especially downtown, because you've been reporting on it. I know everybody has about just the amount of people who have not been going back to work. I think some of the more recent numbers from the Downtown Seattle Association say maybe 40 percent of pre-pandemic levels. What impact do you think this is going to have on that number? Yeah, you know, I'm not one to evangelize uh, in-person work or demonize it. Right. I, don't, I don't know the answers, but I think uh, objectively for the businesses that are in the Denny Triangle, Celtic Union, this is an objectively good thing. Um, I talked to Rachel from Rachel's Ginger Beer about a year and a half ago, and she opened up a location at the base of one of Amazon's towers. And she said Amazon was a great landlord and the location's been fine, but she you know, had plans to open it before the pandemic. And she's like, it's kind of frustrating. I was counting on tens of thousands of people visiting my shop every day. Yeah. And it's just a fraction of that. And you hear that from a lot of local business owners in that area, right? They're not getting that lunchtime yeah. traffic. They're not getting the happy hour traffic. Maybe people are coming after work, but that's a big chunk of the day they're not getting business during. Yeah. And what about as leverage? Do, do you get the sense that employees fear that if they don't come back, mm -hmm. they could be among the next wave of layoffs? 
good question. I haven't heard that yet. Um, I'll, I'm going to touch base with a lot of people, you know, over the next week and see what this announcement, what they think. But I, a lot of them have been obstinate. Um, you know, I have, I have a great source. She's a software engineer. And she's been like, oh, I'm not going back. Um, mm. I, I like my home office. I get all my work done. I've been here for 10 years. I'm not going back. Um, we'll see if she changes her tune or if other people feel different. But I think Amazon's going to have a tricky time convincing everyone to come back. Um Especially if so many people don't want to come back, they can't lay them all off, right? And also, aren't <laughs> many of the teams are spread out, right? Right, so they're not all within Seattle. There's people who are yes. working on the same team, but they are in different locations. So. Yeah, yeah, I can't speak for every team, obviously, and I'm sure there are some that are geographically centered. But especially during the pandemic, they hired a lot of people remotely. Hired a lot of people from places that aren't don't have tech hubs. They just work from their office. And there's a lot of teams that are just splintered geographically. Anecdotally, I have a friend who works at AWS, and I don't think she has barely anybody on her team who's based in Seattle. Um, she has one person who, you know, works in one state, one person who works in another state, a couple who work in a completely different state. And there are a lot of teams like that. So um, I'm sure they have a reason for getting those people back into the office, but logically it doesn't make a lot of sense. And did you just mention that a number of people have been hired remotely, right? I mean, they were sort of, is that right? Yeah, well, they were, you know, we were all going through this. They were hired and Amazon said, yeah, hey, we're a hybrid work policy or remote first. And there were a lot of job openings. You know, you could peruse it over the past three years that said a remote position. Mm. Um, a lot of them, you know, maybe were based in Seattle, but none of them really explicitly said you will be based at, a, at an office. So there are people who were hired who have never actually been in the Amazon office at I would, all. I would right? say many. Right. Um, maybe they've traveled for an onsite. They've been to day one. There have been a lot of onsites over the past year. Um, if you go to down to Denny Triangle on a random Friday, you might see a lot of Amazon people just because there's an AWS onsite. But other than that, yeah, they probably haven't visited an office. So, Alex, Amazon knows something about data. They, <laughs> they, they could presumably save money on office space by having people work remotely. Do, should we assume that they are looking at data that says performance drops when people work remotely versus in the office? Or do you think it's more of that investors want us to do something, so let's just look like we're doing something? Do we know the answer? I'm sure it's a little bit of both, right? You know, I, over the past few months, I've read a couple different stories going back and forth on what productivity means when you're working remotely and working in person. Um, and a lot of it just might mean, you know, those at the top think that in-person work, you know, you have better performance. Um, plus, they own a lot of their buildings. Now, yes, they lease mm. most of them, but they've got these big towers that they own. And from a portfolio standpoint, they don't want those to just be a waste. Um, Good they, point. they want their campuses to be lively. There's a reason they put their campus in the middle of Seattle. Right. They yeah. didn't want a campus that's you know far away, closed off. They want it to be part of the city. When there's nobody in that campus, then they're not good corporate citizens, yeah. you know, reflectively and they want people there. I, I will say just in terms of connecting with people, I've noticed it at City Hall. Granted, they're doing sort of a hybrid type of situation where they have the Zoom access or what have you to public meetings, et cetera. But in terms of those meetings in the hallway, you know, those informal type of things where people are actually connecting with each other person to person. And again, I'm not going to evangelize on either side of this, too, but I think there is some value to that, to making that personal connection. And I, I feel like that might be part of the equation here, too. I think so, too. And I think that's being factored in. You know, a lot of the talk of these tech companies going back is um, they're always saying, how can we make these spaces collaborative? Mm -hmm. Maybe you stay at home on the days where you're just head down working on a project by yourself. But uh, we're seeing them embrace collaborativity in person. Um, I found some permits in the day one and Doppler buildings that suggest that they're, you know, knocking out walls, moving some furniture to make these more collaborative spaces. Um, I was given a memo, you know, of a back to work guidelines for a certain team based out of the frontier building. 
And there's a lot of talk about, you know, community building and flexible workspaces where you're working together as a team. I toured the Meta building in Bellevue, and there's a lot of collaborative space there. There's all these conference rooms and meeting spaces, and they're pretty upfront about like, you know, we want you in the office to collaborate and work with your teammates. Um, so I think that that's a big factor there too. Okay, I, want, I have to move on. We have of to course. go to other things. But I want my final question to be a segue to our next topic because we're going to talk about housing. What about you, you, you cover em, you know, office buildings emptying out. What's the news on turning some of that unwanted office space into homes? I think on its face, it's a great idea, right? It's it's just sitting there. I, I don't think in earnest it would happen in downtown Seattle. Uh, my colleague, Shauna De La Rosa, did a great story about you know the projects going on in Tacoma. And what she found and what she heard is uh, it's a lot easier to do in older buildings. The floor plans are you know um, better suited for it. The buildings don't build as deep into the building. So you know if you live there, you're closer to a window. And they're just easier to cut up into residential units. A lot of these tech companies, especially Amazon, they're in newer buildings. The tower they're giving up at West 8th, that's from 09. That's a really new building. And those just don't cut up into residential units easier. No. Plus, these brokers, um, I don't think they want to do that. They want tech clients in their buildings. Um, Amazon pays a lot of money on rent. So if you're a landlord, if you're a broker, you're getting a lot more money when you have a Google, when you have an Amazon, when you have a Meta hmm. in your building rather than cutting it up and you know, uh, renting it out residentially. Okay. I recommend uh, uh, alongside, not in competition, but alongside your great work, I recommend we have a housing reporter at KUOW, and Joshua McNichols has reported on, uh, he, I remember he called it the uh, the pineapple uh, slice idea of business that you're nodding your head. Like sort of, I, I don't know if it's a courtyard in the middle, but uh, anyway, buildings that can are more modular and can be shifted around these kind of uses. So I commend you to his work at KUOW.org, which brings me to the question at hand this week. Seattle had a vote, had, a, had an election this week, and it looks like so far they're passing this initiative to create what is called social housing, permanent housing that's affordable for a mix of incomes on sort of a sliding scale. Brian, would you tell us how this housing would work? It's a pretty complex thing, relatively new to the United States. There's one other place that does it in the U.S., Montgomery County in Maryland, which is a suburb outside of D.C., and they've had some success with it. So the push was to do it here. It's more common in places that are not in the U.S. Uh, Helsinki, Finland is one uh, example there. At any rate, this is the type of housing where what's going to happen, because it looks like this really is going to pass, uh, what's going to happen is there will be a public development authority set up. And what it will do is start to create, purchase, and manage these different buildings. And in doing that, they would be owned by the city. But the way it would work, it would be a mixed income of people coming in there so that it would be people down to people making maybe 30% of the area median income all the way up to 120% of the area median income, which is very important because those higher rent people. So the max amount you would pay, and this is where this is where it's a little different than many other models, the max amount that you would pay for your housing, 30% of your uh, monthly income. So they're really keeping a cl- close track on that. So the theory is at least those people that are of that higher income level those dollars are going to help subsidize those people who are making less. And so it's very much based on making sure that there are people of mixed incomes that are in these different buildings. There's been a lot of uh, talk about this. And, you know, some doctors at Children's Hospital are saying, wait a minute, I can't even afford a place next to me, you know, and and, and we're talking about not just, you know, people are making less, people are making more too, having trouble finding housing in our area. So it is a new model. 
Uh, I think there are, <clears throat> excuse me, still some question marks as to how it's going to launch. It's going to take some money from the Seattle City Council over the next 18 months to set up an office for this PDA, this Public Development Authority, to work, actually making sure that their salary for the staff of this group. The estimate early is $750,000, but I'm really interested to see where that amount is actually going to land and how the council deals with this over the next several months. You said there are some question marks. Uh, Claudia Rowe, you're a member of the Seattle Times editorial board, which editorialized against this initiative. So are you going to bring some question marks here? One of the questions that still, to me, has not been completely answered, Brian, maybe, I'll do my best. maybe yeah. you have the answer. Yeah. What the board, uh, what the editorial board understood is that the higher income renters would be paying above market rate for an apartment to subsidize or offset the lower income rec- uh, renters who would be paying less, below market rate, right? Yeah. So I, I, I guess, the again, looking back at that number, what it's saying is the amount that you are paying for housing, nobody is going to exceed that 30% mark, meaning it's like, here's 30% of your monthly income. You cannot go above that level there. So they're, they're, I think they're trying to keep within that framework there. And I think the hope is with these different projects they develop, they can have some higher end units and they can have some smaller units, et cetera. But uh, that focus on the income, I think, is, is the best way to try to explain how that money is going to be subsidizing the other units. Right. But if, say, you're making $145,000 a year, which okay. is the upper bracket, yep. right? So- so then, you know, whatever, 30% of that is. Sure. But, but what I'm saying is would an apartment that went to that renter um, be going for a higher rent than mm. that renter could get somewhere else? I, I don't that, think so. I, that I, was what was confusing. Okay. I, and I've seen a few things. Like, for instance, the, the news story that the Seattle Times ran as the, as the votes were coming in also seemed to indicate that. Um, and that and that was one point of skepticism. Would people be willing to to pay that? Now I realize that the supporters of the initiative have said no, but I, that that wouldn't be true. And that goes to what you're saying. But it does seem a little bit murky exactly yeah. how it shakes out. And would renters at the higher levels be willing to pay more than they might need to elsewhere? Got it. And I guess what I would say in relation to that is in terms of how these different housing complexes are going to be managed, there will be a renter-led board that is doing that. So in terms of these different issues that you're talking about here, I think this is something that renters are going to be talking about with each other and hopefully can come to some sort of answer about it. Now, I say this not as a defender of this initiative or anything along those lines, but just trying to get the facts out about it. It is definitely something new. It is a bit of an experiment, and this is not going to be launched off the ground tomorrow. I mean, this is an authority that has to grow. It has to build a bonding authority so that it can actually get some of these different buildings, but it's going to start inserting itself into Seattle city politics and housing uh, over the next several months here. And I think it it might throw a few question marks or curveballs at the work that the Seattle Housing Authority is doing later on this year to renew the housing levy. So I, I think the average voter out there is going to be saying, wait a minute, we've got a lot of housing stuff we're voting on and what's where, where are those dollars going? So that's just another piece of it. Right. Um one other question that came up is um, possibly in the framing, right? The supporters, the, the name of their group is that uh, House Our Neighbors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think it's House Our Neighbors. House Our Neighbors, right. right? It's not really a homelessness intervention, hmm. right? It's, it's conceivably a homelessness prevention uh-huh. model, right? But it's not really 
housing. It's not really addressing our our immediate screaming crisis of homelessness. Yeah, it is addressing, I guess, um, sort of a, a, a more of a mixed income city, a yep. city where more types of people earning yeah. uh, uh, more types of earners can live yeah. successfully. But that was another thing. I think that the framing of it as mm-hmm. potentially an answer to our huge screaming crisis. Yeah, it's a. It, not exactly. I, no. I guess. Well, no. I guess what I would say there is there are people who are working who are homeless right now. Um, there are a number of people in that camp, and so I think the framers of this bill were trying to look at the spectrum of housing. If you want to put homelessness, people without housing at one end of that spectrum, and people who are uh, stably housed at the other end of that spectrum, they're trying to figure out that sweet spot there where they can help a good amount of people. And I think what we're seeing right now is, uh, especially with this whole idea that it's going to provide people uh, for people who pay up or who are making up to 120 percent of the area median income, they're trying to provide, we need housing at all levels, right? We need it for people who are low income. We need it for people of middle and high income too, because they're getting priced out as well. So I think it's trying to provide that uh, holistic answer, if you will, and trying to pull some people up, if it can, out of that homeless situation who might not be able to afford a place right now, but maybe this can be that step up that they can take. Right. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, we, we, we're, we're interested in every topic, yep. and I still got more to cover in this week in review. I just, Alex, is there a, one more question that you wanted to get in you haven't heard yet? Yeah, and I might ask you to speculate a bit here, Brian. But um, you know, we had, we had a story. We interviewed Tiffany McCoy, yep. uh, the co-chair, and uh, my colleague asked her, you know, if the city council or state won't fund it, how are you going to fund it? She said they're working on a progressive revenue source, but yeah. then said she couldn't <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, what what does that look like? I I'm not sure. Okay. I, that that's a, a project that the city has been working on for quite some time. Uh, Teresa Mosqueda on the city council has been talking about that and leading some of those uh, some of that work. But I think that's at least part of the question going forward here. How how is the city council from the start going to begin funding this? And is there a model that the city needs to continue keep on uh, keeping on putting money into this? Is that uh, with some progressive revenue sources or something along those lines? I think that is a, a discussion down the line, and the city council is starting to have it now. Okay, we will watch this uh, public develop authority form, and uh, with all these good questions, uh, on Wednesday, the initiative supporters posted, it's official, social housing is coming to Seattle. And by official, they mean it's not official. It's just encouraging uh, to, to them. It's likely uh, this is, vote has not been certified yet. We'll see. I uh, also wanted to say, in case people, uh, we flew past it fast, that Amazon back to work three days a week begins May 1st, you said. I just wanted to sort of highlight that. May 1st. May 1st. And fi- so finally, before we take a break, part three of our Seattle trilogy is that uh, the city of Seattle is says it's finally about to move away from just armed cops answering all the 911 calls. The city's been promising for a couple of years to add civilian mental health responders. This week, KUOW's Amy Radel took us to a 911 call center where a strategic advisor named Bill Schreier described the coming changes. So the city council and the mayor this year authorized a co-dispatch or alternative dispatch program where we, the 911 center, would be able to dispatch alternative responders, mental health professionals, for example. The city is keeping the test program small for the first couple years. The pilot team will have just two civilian responders on staff per shift. 
But call takers also need to ask the right questions to figure out when these new responders are appropriate. They may draw on the process already used by crisis hotlines. Neil Olson is with the nonprofit Crisis Connections. He says call takers on their hotlines have to constantly evaluate whether callers have the means and intent to harm themselves or others. We're going to think about this through all of those different lenses and then pair that up with the right response. Everything from in the background, we're calling 911 and asking for an ambulance to get there right now to, hey, it was great talking to you. Call us back if you need anything and everything in between. Seattle City Council member Andrew Lewis has urged the city to implement non-police responses more quickly. He says cities like Denver and Albuquerque have already shown that civilians with the right training can safely respond to 911 calls. All these other cities are doing it. We are not an early adopter. We're a late adopter to this work. So there's plenty of models we can emulate that'll keep our personnel safe. Brian, Seattle never did defund the police. Is this the alternative action that we've been waiting for? I, well, this is just a pilot program, and I, I will point out that this is something that's been in the works for a while. Mayor Durkin, if you'll recall, back in 2021, had a plan for triage one, as she called it, where it would be something similar to, li- to this, where you'd have these civilian responders going out with sworn officers. But just to take a quick jump back with this, there was a report that the Seattle Police Department commissioned a couple years ago from the National Institute uh, criminal justice of, of criminal justice reform, the Nick Jr. report, they call it around City Hall. And what it found out was, and just looking at some of the calls that were out there, 80% of them, as they found over the years 2017 to 2019, actually were non-criminal in nature, and only 6% of them involved a felony of any sort. So in that report, they actually recommended to the police, okay, 70% of these calls that you're going out on should have some civilian uh, response to them in some way. And so what we've been going through is just uh, I think a process over the uh, uh, past couple years of, okay, how are we going to build this? How are we going to do it? And, and the, the, uh, the pandemic certainly didn't help with this, but how do we build something such that we can have this civilian response and the police response? There was a little bit of a battle over a while, over a while ago. Okay. Do these people go in the same car? Police are saying, okay, we need to go in different vehicles. So I, I think they're trying to work out some of these different details, but they're trying to put some sort of pilot in place so that we can get real about this whole idea of 911 alternatives, because I think that's the reality with these calls. More than half of them do not really require this kind of criminal response. But the challenge is making sure that when those 911 call takers take those calls in, they actually figure out what's going on and can make the right call as to what resources need to be there. Yeah, it's hard to tell from a 911 call what's even actually happening, much less what's about to happen next. I it think changes. police pointed yeah. out that that's it's easier to look backward after the fact and say, this is how the calls turned out. Yeah. But who you should send in the moment, that's tough. Yeah, it, and it changes. And that's something that Chief Diaz, when he was still interim chief, brought up was that, okay, in almost 90%, 97% of these cases, the initial thing that we thought it was changed. So that's that's that's... A little bit of his pushback here. I will say, though, the chief is on board with this. The mayor's on board with this. The council's on board with this. Has it taken too long? Yes, I would agree with uh, Councilmember Lewis on that uh, scale. But I think we're going to see something in the first quarter of this year that should help prove this, yay or nay. Can we do something with a 911 alternative that can hopefully deal with some of these different calls of behavioral health, especially, that are out there? Okay, we have to pause and get to Olympia in a moment after a break so that we can feel like we really covered the week in review for you. We're going to get right back to it when we return. You rely on this podcast to stay informed and connected with your local community, and we rely on you. Without listener support, this show simply wouldn't exist. Be a part of the team that makes this show possible by donating to our home, 
KUOW. It only takes a minute. Donate at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thank you. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke, with Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan, Puget Sound Business Journal's Alex Halverson, and the Seattle Times' Claudia Rowe. And we're streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio there. In Olympia, Washington, state lawmakers might be about to do to gun manufacturers and sellers what some states have done to tobacco and opioid sellers. Claudia, what's the idea? It's Quite interesting. It's called the Justice for Victims Law. It's a bill at this point, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it essentially would empower uh, the attorney general or any private citizen to sue the gun industry um, for, for instance, marketing to kids, um, like as as happened with tobacco, um, or marketing, uh, encouraging use by people who shouldn't have guns. It essentially creates standards um and a financial incentive, really, for the industry to sort of adhere to best practices and cre- and opens a channel for um, punishing them if they don't. But do we have a problem with gun manufacturers marketing or, or retailers marketing to kids? Hmm. I think people would say that we do. I think people would say that um, that that the gun industry. Um, I think I've seen the term hyper-masculine. I mm. think um, that there is that assertion that the, that the gun industry does um, market to kids. And also, this is really not just about kids. This is really about um, asking the industry to take more responsibility for who it sells to, for enforcing background checks and waiting periods and all the various kind of pieces that we have put together. This is sort of, um, I think, creating a mechanism to bring that whole patchwork together. We have sort of a patchwork of um, responsibility, sort of incremental um, moves toward responsibility, and this encompasses them and and opens a channel for some legal action if that fails. Yes. Over the past few years, we've closed some background check loopholes. We've got red flag laws. We've prohibited the sales of um, uh, so-called assault-style rifles to, to, to people under 21. So who would be able to sue? Victims' families or the state? Correct. Both. Both. Um, and there is a bit of precedent for this. It's not like we're out there all by ourselves, but it is kind of new. Um, so New York uh, did pass a law uh, in 2021, which was, I think, uh, used last year in 2022, um, as well the families of nine victims in the um, Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook yeah. correct, in the Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut, also um, brought a, a civil suit under this kind of mechanism, and they were successful. Hmm. Yeah, it, it just I think it's just an interesting thing from a legal perspective here because, as I understand it, the federal legislation that is out there basically shields the gun industry from these civil suits in federal court, so this state avenue is kind of the new way to, to do it. And I think uh, Bob Ferguson is 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 anxious to work on this as attorney general. He certainly came in with a big haul uh, for the state of Washington when you talk about the opioid suits that he has brought forward, more than half a billion dollars. So um, I think 
he knows what he's doing, and I'd, I'd be interested to see a tool like this in his hands because uh, he's not afraid to go after some of those those big operations. Absolutely, and you touch on exactly exactly sort of you know the people who have spoken against this proposed law have said it'll never stand, and I think Bob Ferguson is mm-hmm. just waiting for somebody <laughs> to challenge him and like let me go improve. Yeah, what I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And meanwhile, there's some other gun restrictions floating around in Olympia, right? Ban on semi-automatic rifles completely, I think, requiring gun owners to, to get safety training. Um, yes, and one the sort of there have been a few, like I said, incremental steps toward um, banning assault, so-called assault rifles, um, semi-automatic uh, correct. rifles. What what the sort of gun responsibility folks had been pushing for was a full-out ban on any um, manufacturing, selling, or distribution of assault rifles to anyone in Washington state. That's what they were going for. Mm -hmm. They they had to insert a clause that significantly weakens their bill Oh, and would permit – a gun seller or distributor to sell out of state. Yeah. Right. So this is to say, oh, you can't um, undercut our means of making a living. Right. Okay. Right. But you, yeah. But then, but with that, it's like just ship it to North Idaho and they, you know, walk across the border type thing. Isn't that kind of the concern? Exactly. That certainly is my concern. Yeah. Though, you know, obviously somebody in Idaho can just go buy their own gun and walk over the yeah, border. That's true. Idaho. Yeah, that's right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, another state legislature issue right now. The lawmakers are deciding what to do about drug possession. Governor Inslee says he doesn't want to see drugs decriminalized because that's been talked about. Inslee says criminal charges can encourage people to get help. Because if we have a few people who will not go into treatment, we need some incentive, which might be a gross misdemeanor. Uh, We'll see what the legislature produces, an incentive for them to go into treatment. We need them to go into treatment. We need them to break this addiction. It's good for them, it saves their lives, and it's good for our communities. Brian, will you remind us why we're talking about drug possession? In 2016, Shannon Blake was arrested in Spokane for simple drug possession. At the time, and this is a case that went all the way to the state Supreme Court, she said, I borrowed my friend's jeans, and it just so happens there was a baggie of methamphetamine in there. Sounds a little crazy, but that's what ended up going in front of the Supreme Court. At the time, as they were working through this decision, the attorneys were saying, okay, uh, she shouldn't be arrested for these charges, whatever else. The state state Supreme Court took it a step further and said, you know what? This entire law is unconstitutional because it violates the uh, due process clause that we have in our Constitution in terms of how this should be happening. And so uh, basically they were saying that this uh, criminalized unknowing drug possession. So they wanted to make sure that they were clear about that. And what that did was put everything into high gear. These discussions about offering more treatment, not as much jail time when it comes to drug possession cases, they've been going on for a long time, even before Blake came down. And this decision on Blake came down in 2021. At that time, the state said, okay, shoot, we got to figure out something within a matter of weeks here because they're right in the middle of their session. So they said, okay, we'll make uh, drug possession a misdemeanor, but police, uh, for the first two times, don't arrest anybody, make sure they get treatment. And so the police said, uh, wait, huh, how do we do that? It, it did. There wasn't a great process for it. And so uh, this this just wasn't working. Everybody on all sides have, have said this just hasn't worked. So the this new piece that they've come up with is this idea. It's a plan right now, Bill uh, 5536. Senator June Robinson is working on this out of Olympia. Um, and so what it's saying is gross misdemeanor. 
uh, it is saying, okay, you're going to get contacted by police here, and they do have to offer those treatment options first. This is a treatment-first type of uh, situation they're setting up here. If they do not accept treatment, then guess what? It is a gross misdemeanor, um, which can be up to 90 days in jail and and some fines, etc. So they are trying to incentivize people to get into that treatment system because if they don't get the treatment, they're going to face some criminal repercussions. Okay. Is there enough treatment? Are there enough that, providers and clinics and medications available? Absolutely not. Uh, there is some money set aside within this bill to try to fund some of these uh, different things, but it's going to be an up, up, uphill slog on that. In terms of you know finding the sites for new facilities that are needed, that's, that's a big issue right there. Making sure people are paid enough to do this work, that's another part of it too. So I think a lot of the work to begin with is going to be trying to expand what's already there in terms of services and just making sure that we're we're honest about this. Law enforcement is supportive of this kind of middle ground here, this gross misdemeanor, which is a good sign. But I do want to make sure in going forward here, that's going to be the big question, Bill. Are we going to be honest about how this is really working? Are people really getting into treatment? I'm hoping that this happens with this because I think what we've heard from everybody is need to end the war on drugs, need to find some middle ground here, and need to make sure that people are getting into treatment. So this is not mandatory treatment with no. with penalties for for violating. They can't compel that, but this is a way to incentivize it. Is one word that's been used here. You know, if you want to avoid criminal uh, repercussions, then here here's what you got. Uh, and so I, I think they're hopeful about that piece. But yes, it, it's not something that can be mandated. People do have to be on board with it, and I, it's happening. I mean, the, these things are happening here. But I, I think that it, it's just such a difficult balance to strike here. You want to make sure that people are getting treatment, but you want to make sure that justice is served. Some of these drug cases involve victims of crime as well. And so you want to make sure that you're even about that I think this is going to be the balance that works out here in Olympia. There's definitely some momentum going this way, uh, but we'll have to see what they come up with over the next couple of weeks. And it's important today, the 17th is actually the day that here we are. This is when bills, if they're not read out of committee, they die. And so this one is making its way out of committee, which is a good sign. And uh, and we'll see where it goes in the rest of the session. Okay. So like you said, middle ground, because some people wanted to go back to making drug possession a felony. Some people wanted to decriminalize drugs. There was talk that... This is that the, the Blake decision. This is the big step toward it, decriminalizing. Could, so neither of those are happening. True, true. Could could have been. And I think the felony idea was okay. We're just going back to the same thing we did before um, with the uh, decriminal decriminalization thing. I mean, Oregon's done it. They're saying that all, right. yeah, I mean, there's, and they voted for that. They're saying all these small amounts of drugs, you know, we're not going to uh, arrest people for that. So I think that's an experiment in progress. This does feel like that, that middle ground piece, but I think, I, I don't think the conversation is done, even after what the uh, state puts in place this session. That is going to be something that will affect us for quite some time, but I think this is a continuing conversation of, okay, how do we really build out those treatment uh, options so it really can be an honest treatment first type of situation in terms of getting people the help they need. Okay, you mentioned crime victims. Uh, Claudia, a minor commits a crime. Judge orders them to compensate their victim. Kid doesn't have the money. This is a problem the legislature is confronting. You want to say more about what the problem is when that happens? Sure. Um, What you're talking about is something called an LFO. It's called legal financial obligation, and it is a series of fines, fees, and restitution. Um, This is common in all kinds of criminal cases. The the proposed law deals only with juvenile crime. And the gist of it is um, Washington is one of only 10 states where judges still 
um, can do these, can lev- levy uh, these kinds of financial penalties on juvenile crime. However, the kids almost never pay. And their parents aren't liable either. And almost all of the kids who are in juvenile court are coming from a very low-income situation. And even a judge in you know, Idaho said, hey, you, you can't get blood from a turnip, mm-hmm. right? There are a lot of judges um, who have commented on this kind of legislation that says it's not practical. It doesn't work because the victims are never made whole, mm-hmm. right? If the kid doesn't have the money for restitution – then the victim is just out there forever. They're never made whole. Not that, you know, not that money is really going to cure their hurt. But there's also the argument that, you know, a lot of people should back up here. So the victims are never made whole. This proposed legislation would create a victim's compensation fund, would say, okay, let's stop charging kids and saddling them with debt that goes on their credit report, that screws up their attempts to uh, get housing or employment when they're no longer minors. It stays there forever. And there's a criminal record thing, too, isn't it? Isn't that involved? Doesn't that kind of hang with them for the rest of their lives, too, or at least a portion of it? It can keep it can keep their record open. I see. Okay. Right. Um, so it hinders the kid who we want to change their life, get on a better path. It also leaves the victims kind of empty, right? So the idea is let's create a victim's compensation fund. Many other states have this. Um, And let's do something else to bolster accountability in the kid. That is the, you know, the argument against this kind of law is, well, then how is there any kind of sense of responsibility or accountability on the part of the young person, right? But the young people that I have seen talk about this quite eloquently and quite intelligently say, but but my ability to pay is no reflection about how I feel about what I did. You know, it, it's not. Um, and you can understand that. I don't see how money really is an accurate measurement of somebody's um, – Feelings of remorse, for instance. So, yeah, but, but is it a situation now where that restitution fund's going to kick in? I mean, is that kind of the next piece here, and that that's how that's how the problem gets fixed? The point is that the, the if this passes, the judges would no longer be able to levy restitution fines on uh, juveniles convicted of crime, right. and and they would have to do community service Correct. hours. Okay, the, the bill the the biggest problem I see in the bill is that. Um, the community service portion of restitution is like eight hours, mm-hmm. right? So I think this is just sort of a bargaining, um, right, to, to bargain because nobody is going to think that eight hours is enough, right? It's not. Um, but I, I think that's just to sort of a, a starting point yeah. to bargain. Right. So uh, Washington state um, judges, they have to mandate um, restitution for juvenile court. Is that correct? They don't have to. Oh, okay. They don't have to, but they can. Okay. Are is this something like we're alone with in Washington? Are are a lot of other states like this, or are we kind of catching up with? More we're catching with this up. Bill? We're one okay. of only ten states where judges uh, still do this. Yeah. Okay, and um, the fact that it would be taxpayers then paying this. Um, the the fines, the fees, the restitution is that a barrier in the legislature? Are are typically Republican uh, lawmakers? It will be, I'm sure. Yeah, um, I mean, it is. Though I I have to say that the 
questions and criticisms I've heard so far have not been so much based on that, but have been more about you're just letting kids go without holding them accountable in any way. That's been the loudest um, objection that I've heard. But yes, right, this would be a a state-funded victim's compensation fund. There is a version of this happening in King County at a very sort of mini, mini level, right? The King County has this diversionary program for Mm -hmm. young people who are um, in the about to be in the court system. And so this is would divert them out of it. And um, I spoke with somebody at that program who said that so far, it's very new, right? I think it's been like a year. But so far, I think 15 victims have availed themselves of the county's compensation fund for a total, a a combined total of like $9,000. So, Mm. you know, it's very, very small scale, but It means something to them, clearly, to to, to have that access to it. Yeah. Okay, one more Olympia story before we take a break. I I didn't know this, that Washington is one of a handful of states that doesn't require clergy to report about evidence of abuse or neglect that they learn about. The legislature is considering adding clergy to its list of mandatory reporters. The Catholic Church's lobbying arm—I read about this in Investigate West—the Catholic Church's lobbying arm in Washington state supports that, clergy being on the list of mandatory reporters, if there's an exception for confessions— Priests, for example, would be able to stay quiet about something they learn in a confession. It's known as the clergy penitent exception. Uh, Claudia, do you know the the basic arguments for and against this idea? Sure. Um, Again, we're a bit of an outlier in terms of, um, I think, 43 states have um, clergy as as mandated reporters. We don't. Most of those states, however, do have this loophole, this clergy penitent privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if I'm going to try to put my head in the my my head in the in and see through the eyes of the Catholic Church, mm. um, which is not an easy thing for me to do. <laughs> yeah. um, I, the argument from their side is that removing that privilege could sort of chill the possibility of somebody unburdening themselves to a priest. Um, That seems like a pretty weak argument to me. I'm just going to say that. They they say that a confession might be the first step an abuser takes to starting to admit what they've done wrong. Right. Right. But there's nothing that says, you know, the priest then, then, you know, urges that confessor to go to law enforcement i mean there i don't know i don't i don't actually i can't really argue that okay. side of it okay yeah. I, yeah. I don't understand how you can have an uh, a a way to to say yeah somebody confesses that they're abusing a child we're just going to we're just not going to say anything about that. I don't know how That's to defend that. That's the position of uh, Jim Walsh, for example, from Ab- a Republican from Aberdeen. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's just, uh, and I'm, I, uh, I'm Catholic myself. Full disclosure here, right? And I, and I can't speak for the church in any in any stretch, but I, I do think that that at least is at the root of uh, the whole idea of confession and reconciliation is this idea that, okay, you need to start down this path. And if you start with a, with a priest, then it's not like it's be all and end all and done at that point. I think there is a connection there and, and the hope and the guiding back to a path of, okay, 
what is what does penance look like? What what are we going to do about this? And I I I, th- I guess that's the other piece of it. And again, I'm not arguing for or against how this works, but I'm just trying to break it down from that perspective. There is the you know this isn't only about um, the Catholic Church, yeah, right? Jehovah's the, Witness um, too, right? So yeah. there's a super interesting example out of Montana um, where a woman accused um, the Jehovah's Witnesses of um, ordering clergy not to report her abuse to authorities, right? Um, and this woman won a $35 million judgment in 2018 um, upholding, saying that her her abuse was prevented from – her reports of her abuse were not forwarded because of this. However, the state Supreme Court reversed that judgment because Montana um, had the clergy penitent loophole. So th- this woman's abuse was r- reported um, to a clergy member and – because of the loophole, she wasn't able to sort of um, be made whole. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're Alex is about you're, is about to. We're going to talk fjord in a moment, Alex. Oh, yeah. But uh, just to, to the, the the last word on this topic, Senator Noel Frame of Seattle is introduced this bill. Um, she says she wants to add clergy to the list of mandatory reporters with or without the clergy penitent privilege. She's open to that compromise. And we'll see what happens in the legislature. Okay, that this is week in review after a short break. Word of the week, fjord, and more. So don't go away. We'll be right back. KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with Seattle Times, Claudia Rowe, Puget Sound Business Journal's Alex Halverson, and Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan. I'm doing this series about words, the words we choose and why. We talked about the words legendary and iconic. For Valentine's Day, we discussed what love means when you can love both your partner and spinach dip. Today, uh, there are really two words of the week. Uh, The first one is... Fjord, a retired school teacher in North Kitsap County, has pointed out to state officials that Hood Canal is not a canal. The Lake Washington Ship Canal is a canal. It's human-made, connects two bodies of water. Hood Canal was named that in the late 18th century by a British naval captain who actually called it Hood's Channel after Admiral Lord Samuel Hood, but somehow it got written as canal on the maritime charts. What Hood Canal actually is, is a long, narrow inlet bordered by steep slopes and formed by glacial activity. In other words, it's a fjord. This teacher suggests calling it Salish Fjord. A UW oceanography professor suggests Skokomish Fjord, recognizing the Skokomish tribe. Uh, Alex, you're a, is it former Kitsap County uh, resident? (laughs) And you you hadn't heard about this bringing into question the canalness, the canality, if you will, of Hood Canal. Yeah, I grew up in North Kitsap. I've never heard anything about this. I grew up just a couple miles away from the Hood Canal. <laughs> Would pass by it all the time. Went over the bridge all the time, and I knew nothing about this. Does the word matter? Ooh. Hey, I kind of tend to think it does, right? I mean, we should be correct, especially about our geography, especially, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, you go up to Bellingham, and a lot of people call the Puget Sound the Salish Sea, so maybe we're already mm-hmm. par- partially there. Um, I-, I love this story. 
Yeah, and it sounds like the change that this uh, teacher is, is pushing for is to call it the Salish Fjord, which mm-hmm. I think is cool. I mean, let's let's give some let's give some notice to the indigenous people in, in this area in that way, and and maybe give it the right name at the same time too. Well, in fact, KUOW reporter John Ryan pointed out that this water had a name long before Admiral Samuel Hood. Yeah. Back before Washington was a state, the nine villages of the Tuaduk people were forced onto the Skokomish Reservation. And Tuaduk Hood Canal is called Tuaduk Sadakwa, which means the salt water of the Tuaduk people. Tom Strong is the Skokomish tribe CEO. To us, we know what the real name of that canal is, just like we know the name of every single river and creek that drains into that canal and what those places really are to us. Chambliss says you can't have culture without language, and putting a bit of the Tuaduk language on the map could help heal the hurt from nearly losing that language and the culture it goes with. And the official name change would be decided by the State Board of Geographic Names. John Ryan, KUOW News. So really, that's our second word of the week. Tuaduk Sadakwa. Seems like a better name for this inlet than, than, than any of the others. Do, do you think that, could you imagine the legislature changing the name of Hood Canal at this point? Would we show up on Tucker Carlson being called woke for doing it? Oh, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, but uh, yeah. I mean, maybe North Kitsap leans into it. I mean, fjord isn't that a, a Norse word? Uh, yep. Paulsbo's Little Norway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see it. It's it's got the for some reason the Monty Python sketch where he buys the dead parrot and he's like, <laughs> no, no, he's pining for the fields. Uh, that <laughs> pining for the fields. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That was going through my head uh, a bunch when I was reading this story. <laughs> <laughs> Always good to have John Cleason, uh, indeed, and, and uh, Michael Palin in your head. Okay, yep. so as John said, any official name change would be decided by the state's board of geographic names, uh, which brings us to almost the end of the show. Um, we have just like less than three minutes to tell people what we smiled about this week. Any nominations? What do you got? No, I don't. I I have not had a very smiley week. Oh no, um, sorry. That's all right. I mean, in news, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's a television show. I like. I don't know. <laughs> okay, name the show. I like Abbott Elementary because okay. it makes. Um, it's very, very hard to get anyone to focus on public education, which I spend an enormous amount of time looking at. Mm-hmm. And it um, pokes fun at the problems in public education in a, in a pretty subversive yet truly humorous and, and kind of gentle way. It is both subversive and not mean. Abbott Elementary, any other smiles? It's a recency bias, but your John Cleese impression. Mm. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I get that a lot yeah, since right. I did that impression. Right. I've been right. hearing that a lot. Uh, I, I'm, I'm such a fan of uh, of baseball, and I just love to see mm. spring training with pitchers and catchers reporting this week. That uh, warms the heart if it doesn't warm the temperature outside. Uh, that's something that uh, I always uh, – has me pining for the fjord, Bill, when you, when you think about it. I, I, I'm looking forward to a cool season. Very good. Yeah, the rite of spring. Uh, okay, I guess my uh, smile of the week. Ice chairs. The Downtown Seattle Association marked Valentine's Day this week by creating giant ice chairs at Occidental Square and Westlake Park. Six-foot-tall wing-back ice chairs with hearts and roses. My colleague, uh, David Hyde, and I were discussing how bad a rap February gets. You know, it's not Christmas anymore. It's just cold and rainy, and we're supposedly sick of it. Uh, and I like that the Downtown Seattle Association embraced the cold and, and, and put a heart on it. So it. Have a seat them. in the ice chair. Why not? That sounds fun. <laughs> have a seat in the ice chair. Yeah. That melted my heart. Um, and, and so did your arrival. 
Oh, oh yeah. See, here's John Hyatt singing about icy blue hearts. Thank you for that, Bernard Wallet. Listening to the Weekend Review has been a total pleasure. Uh, Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callan. Thank you, Brian. Great to be here, Bill. Seattle Times editorial board member and columnist Claudia Rowe. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me in. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks again, Bill. Thank you to producer Kevin Kadistet. Thank you to social media and live streaming producers Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Bernard Willette is running the board and melting my icy blue heart. Thank you for listening. I'm Bill Radke, and have a great week. And whether it was great or not, we're going to discuss it a week from now. We'll see you then. He said I have melted some hearts in my time, dear. But to sit next to you. Well, I shiver and shake